This, this, this is straight, straight, straight out of Crumpton with your host, Greg Crumpton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Straight Out of Crumpton. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern, joined as always by the man himself. It's Mr. Greg Crumpton. Greg, welcome to another episode, man. How you doing? Well, Tyler, good Monday. Uh, we typically don't get to talk on Monday, so at least my week starts out good because I've got you, yours maybe not so much. But thank you for taking time with us this morning. Looking forward to a great podcast. We're really excited about this episode and our guest and uh, looking forward to tapping that vein a little bit and, and getting a little good stuff out. So glad to do it. I agree wholeheartedly. Great way to start the week. Great way to start the Monday is recording a podcast. And we have a fantastic guest. His name is Mitch Joel. He is the author of a best-selling book called Six Pixels of Separation. He also has a blog and a podcast of the same name. You can find him at sixpixels.com. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm great. Tyler, good to see you. And Greg, great to be reconnected again. Even though we're connected digitally, it's good to be reconnected and seeing you again. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you for uh, taking time with us. We were talking a little bit before we got started about how the world has evolved over the last couple of years and continues to evolve with everything that's going on, COVID-related, war-related, all that kind of good stuff. So it's good to be able to connect in person and look at somebody in the camera. I think that's as good as we can get right now. So glad to have you on board. Yeah, happy to be here. I mean, it seems like things are coming back a little bit more in our protein forms, as I like to say, but I think virtual now is, is just part of the flow as well, for sure. Yeah, I just wish I would have in, invested more in video content or our video platform providers like three years ago. And uh, the way I look at it is like this. If I could have invested in video platforms three years ago, knowing that there'd be a global pandemic, I'd prefer not to have made those investments. <laughs> yeah, well, true, true. The way my investments go, it would be a luck thing anyway, so who knows. Um, but, uh, you know, Tyler just told us uh, a little bit about your history, and it's a, a deep and rich history. I was doing my homework uh, last night, kind of refreshing, and the book that, that stood out for me was Control-Alt-Delete. I guess because, first of all, I love orange. I, I was drawn to it like a goldfish. But really, that's when I really started digging your work. And I think weekly, I'm enamored that you are able to produce and curate and publish so much work because I typically get two emails from you every week. One is the Saturday, and then I get the podcast refresh on, on a Sunday. How in the world do you do all that, man? I mean, do you sleep? Yeah, no, I sleep. I sleep like a baby. I wake up every hour crying, right? So, uh, <laughs> um, it's so funny to hear you say that because I sit on the other side of the fence as the content creator. And if I go back historically, I was originally doing seven pieces of content a week. I was doing a blog post or an article. They weren't even blog posts. They were real articles every single day. And then the podcast happened again. We're, we're going back a long time, close to 20 years on both of them. So I've been doing this a long, long time. And over the years, I, I've shifted quite considerably, obviously, to the point where it's at minimum two, which would be my six links that I share, with, which I co-curate with two other friends of mine, Hugh McGuire and Alistair Kroll. And that came out of lunch meetings. We meet for lunch and Alistair being a real heavy tech, deep tech analytics person, Hugh being more from the publishing, but having a keen eye of 
he's got this thing called LibriVox, which is a, a free audiobook platform that he developed before Audible existed. And in those conversations, you're just sharing, hey, did you check this out? Did you see this? Do you know about that? And we decided to create this thing that's now been going for, I think, over well, 15 years almost, mm-hmm. where every single Saturday, we each send one another a link, which three people curates into six links. And we never know what each other's sending, and we only see it at the end. Uh, and then the podcast is every Sunday. And then during the week, I usually do a couple of national radio hits, and I was publishing one of those as well, which I might do again. We'll see how that goes. But my style has changed. So when you say, how do you do so much? <laughs> my, my feeling is I feel like I've been slowing down, not doing as much. <laughs> well, you know, that, that may be true from your viewpoint, like you said, but from somebody who, like me, is an amateur hack at a lot of things. I'm really good at one thing in life and that's air conditioning. I do. I'm proud of I that. that. I know yeah. that business very well. Well, everyone should know first, before you finish that thought that you and I met because of Jeffrey Gittimer. That's, that's how right. we've originally connected. And, you yeah. know, the old saying that any friend of Jeffrey's is, is a friend of mine clearly was very true in the connection he made between us. So we have, we've Gittimer to, to thank and or beat up on for this. Well, I, I prefer to beat up on. You know, Who it's just easier. Yeah. It's easier with him. I think he welcomes um, it. <laughs> he, he's actually been on with us. I don't know what Tyler. A couple of months ago, we had yeah, Jeffrey, yeah, three months back, and uh, we we tried our best to beat him up then. But <laughs> you know, that is. Uh, I was going to go into that when when we start down the rabbit hole of relationships. But you're so accurate that that is how we got going. And I lost my train of thought of what I was talking. Well, you about. were talking. You're saying you're only good at one thing, which is oh air yeah, yeah. So everything else is like, I'm trying my best to learn it. You know, like right now I'm working on writing that, that elusive book that everybody wants to do and does never get to, but I'm actually trying to get to learning about the podcast world and uh, learning about cannabis and how you grow that in an indoor environment, because you have to have certain environmental conditions. So that kind of parlays into the HBC world, but when when you look at all of those things that I'm kind of doing, and then, you know, this is like your life's work. And maybe it seems easy to you because you, you do it and you have done it for so long. And to me, it looks like a monumental task, but um, it just comes across so well and so robust. So obviously you, you've got a lot to be proud of there. Well, I appreciate the kind words. It's very kind of you. Well, I really, I look forward to it. You know, I, I'm a I'm a guy who does my Saturday errands, and I'm usually listening to you while I'm running around whatever town I happen to be living in. Great. And then I looked back yesterday at the uh, piece you did with Daniel or, or Jonathan, rather, the living the good life. I think some yeah, Jonathan Fields. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was a really cool piece you did with him way back in the day. People should watch that because I think that's really, from my version of you, it speaks well to what you're all about, that piece that's still on your website. So I think if you're okay with it, let's dive into how, like you were talking about with Hugh and Alistair, how you guys got together. You're talking about this stuff anyway. So, okay, if we're talking about it. Let's share it. And give us a little bit of history, you know, how you met those guys, what that's like. And then roll all the way back to that 18-year-old with the Tommy Lee interview. <laughs> I still just, find that interesting. You just drop on the, the name drop. Well, yeah, we can do a quick review 
yeah. of, of what happened. And what happened primarily for me is I came from a very good middle to lower middle class family. And I have three brothers. And when you're in that and you have parents who are both working full time, you can imagine four boys with you know a three-year gap between all of us. It's a heavy, that's a, it's a pretty big burn rate you got going there as a family. Yeah. And one of the things my parents told me, and I don't know if this is true or they just made it up after because it sounds good, but they would often do things like for the holidays, they would buy us like an Atari or a computer and we'd have to share it. Now they would claim in the future that what a great way to keep brothers together and to share in this. I don't know if it was just a strategy to buy one gift and not have to deal with four individual ones and the cost of that is probably a mixture of both. But they were really early adopters. And my dad in particular loved this stuff. First stereo components, first VH, Betamax and then VHS and then it's a CD. So I was always really attracted to that tech and technology. I remember in grade five or six, me writing a book report in elementary school and printing it off on my dot matrix printer. And I used like print shop or one of those tools to make the cover page. And it came back, I got a zero. And the teacher said that, <laughs> There was no proof that I actually wrote it because it was printed up. Like imagine how old school that would sound now, how absurd it sounds and how much we've come. But I felt back then this power of technology and I would literally create newsletters at, when I was a counselor or day camp for the staff, like fun little goofy cartoons and printouts and stuff like that. I was always down this road. Now, tangentially, I also loved music. I had two older mm. brothers who loved music. The older brother directly to me was into guitars and hard rock and got me turned on to a whole bunch of those bands. And this was a time when there was no internet. So we were living and breathing off of magazines like Circus and Rip and Hit Parade or Rolling Stone. And I would look at these covers every single week because my dad had a pharmacy and there was a corner store that sold newspapers and magazines and cigars and smokes and all that stuff. And they were friends and I would walk in and he knew exactly what I wanted. I would take these magazines and just read them from cover to cover. Now, what, what's unique about this cat, me, is I would always be like, who is that person who got to interview Gene Simmons from Kiss? Like, who is this person? How do you do that? And just through the, the nature of serendipity, I met somebody who was writing for a very large teen magazine up here in Canada. And they didn't have any chops in terms of typing and computers. And it was demanded from the company that they start getting into it. And so basically, they cut a deal with me that, hey, I'll transcribe my stuff to you or give you written stuff. You turn it into the article, like type it up and database it and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I'll give you some free CDs and you'll come hang out with me at shows and stuff. And it was, you know, great. I'm like a kid in my teens and suddenly I'm backstage and meeting artists. That sounds like a pretty good gig. Great gig. Great gig. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you a, a tangential story to this in a second. This is kind of funny. But you know, got to the point where they were invited to to go to, I think it was Toronto. We live in Montreal to interview some artists. And on the way, they got a call that Motley Crue was going to be in town for Dr. Feelgood, this new album that they were launching in the early, late 80s. And uh, there'd be an interview with Tommy Lee, the drummer from Motley Crue. And he basically looked at me and said, you love Motley Crue, this is yours. And I thought, oh my God, this is like literally my first <laughs> interview ever is Tommy Lee. And I walk into like this massive radio station and everyone is there and it's like, you could feel the energy. I could see him through the glass. This is crazy. Did the interview and he's like, you know, why don't you just write it up? Like, why don't you just write the article? So I wrote it up. He submitted it under his name, which is fine. It was part of the deal. I was totally fine with that. Right. And the editor basically came back and said, well, that doesn't sound like you're writing. Who is this? And he came clean and said, you know what? I've got this kid who's like 16 or 17 years old. He types up my articles. He helps me out. I throw him some tapes and CDs and concert tickets. Bring him in, you know? 
I go in to meet these people and they're like, look, we're, we're a teen, we're a magazine that, that caters to teens. You're a teen. You should write for us. And, you know, what an amazing, I mean, I don't even think they paid me, but they were paying me in concert tickets and backstage passes and what more do you need? And later in life, I would go on to write for Circus Magazine. And at the time it was Jerry Rothberg who was still there as the, as the publisher. And he used to always call me, um, Minnie Cameron, I think it was Minnie Cameron, because he had worked with Cameron Crowe and Almost Famous in that movie. And he was like, you're like the next version of this kid who was like just running around on the road with all these bands. So what happens at this time is really luck and privilege because the internet starts taking hold and I start getting really into the internet and connectivity. And then those worlds really collide. I start seeing that, you know, I could put, I started publishing music magazines in print and I could put these articles on the internet. This is before websites really existed. And just that's just started really melding. And that led me to publishing magazines and being in that industry, which led me to meeting people in the search business, which led me to being a part of a search engine prior to Google being founded that had developed all the sales models we see now that I was a part of. And it just led on this amazing journey of culture, music, media, advertising that I was always a part of. And then if I fast forward like a long, longer time in the early 2000s, met some people, started an agency with them, three other people. It was called Twist Image. We grew that to be quite successful, multi-city Montreal, Toronto. We got acquired by a very large public company called WPP um, and then became a part of this entity that we all created called Miram, which is now mm-hmm. part of Wonderman Thompson and you know, built the business, sold the business. That was about eight years ago. I left about four years ago. And in the process of building that business, you know, again, luck and privilege, right? Blogging comes in. I start blogging six pixels of separation. I start podcasting. I get offers to speak. I get offers to write. And so as I transition out of the agency life, I thought, well, I can speak and write and continue to create content, which they were graceful and kind enough to allow me to do because they owned a lot of the IP. Mm. Transferred it back to me. And uh, it's been that where I've been investing and advising since then. I'm about to launch a new startup, which I'm not really ready to talk about. But that journey of speaking creating content and doing conversations like this, either on my own or as a guest, led me down this path of meeting so many amazing people. You know, Jonathan Fields from The Good Life Project definitely being one of them. And again, you want to talk about some connective tissue here. I did that interview on the launch of my second book, Control Alt Delete, that orange book covered book that you're talking about. And that same day, we did a book launch at Google that night with Seth Godin that you were there for, that you reminded me of just before we recorded. So yeah. it seems like every time I have a good thing in my life happen or someone cool, like Greg is in the background hanging out, <laughs> <laughs> doing yeah. something. I don't know what, what strings you're pulling, but thank you. I'm your lucky rabbit's foot. So. I think you are, yeah. So when I, when I listen to all of that, I start looking for those tenets that run through all those relationships. And the com- word communication pops for me because you were communicating with print and then online and now verbal, now in person doing keynotes and what have you. And then the people side of it, like you being able to really tie the digital world back to the protein version of us, as you say. And and I think that's so important. And Tyler and I have talked about this over the last couple of years. During this crazy world, when the pandemic started, everybody went away and it was virtual only. And then people began to miss that in-person touch and that in-person phone call. Is that right? Yeah, a real phone call. Like pick up the <laughs> phone and say, hey, Tyler, that's right. correct. And now 
I had this conversation, I've had it often over the last month or two, where people really are appreciating a voice and somebody taking time to call them or send them a note. We're kind of like, it's almost like it went full circle to me from my viewpoint. And I get an email from somebody at my office, which is about an hour and a half away where our headquarters is. And instead of replying, sometimes I just call and say, hey, I got your email. How are you? You know, checking in. That really resonates with a lot of people right now, I think, because we've been in this tomb. Have you seen that or? I see a lot of cultural changes. And Mm -hmm. if I go back pre-pandemic, there was this running joke that, you know, if your phone ever rang, you'd be like, why, why would you, why would you call me? It's supposed to be a text. Like we have that (laughs) kind of this relationship, like, isn't that weird that you're calling me? Why would you do that? Right. Because we become very culturally accustomed to texting as a way of, of, of maintaining an ongoing conversation, et cetera. So I think we need to remember the world a little bit before the pandemic. Because if we think about that, getting a phone call or handwritten note pre-pandemic was also pretty amazing for yeah. some people. You know, some other people jokingly would say, you're a psycho. Like, why would you do that? You just send an email and don't, or text me. And again, again, talk about things that, that have connected you and I over the years. That's directly from the book of Jeffrey Gittimer. Yeah. Writing a handwritten note sending people a thank you message, reaching out personally, letting them know that you're not there to sell them anything, but you're there to connect to them. The tenets of Jeffrey's work had a profound impact on how I think about creating content because I don't think about creating content in the same way others do, which is also a societal change. So if I go back to thinking about those magazines that I talked to you about earlier, I think most people who create content actually want to be Gene Simmons on the cover of the magazine. They want their face to be the celebrity. I still create content because I want my byline to be the person who wrote that story. So my general approach to everything is very much around how is this creating more value for you, Greg, or you, Tyler, or someone else? I don't want to ever create a podcast or have a conversation or share links that aren't giving you more value than it is for me creating it. because. I also come from the school of Susan Orleans, who, for those who don't know, is a really famous creative nonfiction author. And Susan would always say that when you're researching, you're learning. And when you're writing, you're teaching. Mm-hmm. And I, I look at writing as, a, as an analogy for any content creation. I want to make sure, not that I'm teaching like I'm a teacher and you are my students, but that I am conveying a message that will create more value for you, hopefully, in, in the work that you do. So then we hit, have this pandemic hit. And I do think that some of our habits changed. Primarily, the old joke of this meeting could have been an email shifted to this email should have been a Zoom, quickly shifted from this Zoom could have been an email. <laughs> like we just went through this massive you know, change right. in, in how we see things. And I do think that adding video as a, as a way for us to communicate for someone like me, so a lot of my peers who are speakers, bought a ring light and a webcam and thought they reinvented the wheel when it comes to virtual <laughs> presentations. Right. And it's not an insult to them, it's just they hadn't done it before. I had been, I'd spent decades in digital communications and playing and having this technology. I, I don't have a YouTube channel or a TikTok channel because I don't think I communicate at my best in video. I feel that I communicate at my best when I'm either writing articles or long-form content 
or creating long-form audio content like my show or a show like this. Mm. So I, I understand where I feel like my best chops are, and I'm constantly trying to create better content within that, maybe stupidly foregoing things like YouTube and TikTok and opportunities. And the truth is I've, I, I'm changing. I mean, even now I'm using new studio tools where I am now recording video components of the podcast and might release it full like video like most, most podcasters do these days, Di- different approach. So the pandemic to me wasn't about, wow, what a massive disruption and change in, in behavior, whether it's consumer behavior or, or work behavior. It really wasn't. What I think happened is we had an amplification and the amplification is just simply that B2B and B2C of every industry in size, small, medium, and large, really understood where they were faltering at in terms of having the facility of being digitally connected to either their customers or teams. And then I also think that the distribution model changed. The distribution model used to be, oh, you know, we're, we're air conditioning. We're more traditional business. And our people aren't on smartphones and videos and up on YouTube and all that. Well, pandemic hit. And I believe that everybody from our youngest of young to our eldest of elderly got very digitized really quickly and understood the components of video and audio and communication. So in a long form, a long-winded way, perhaps, let me circle back to what you were saying, which is, I believe that when we turned on our cameras as a way to digitally communicate, there was a realization that there are people there and that their Mm. time and space is unique from mine. And that maybe I can do things that are more personable or personal to make the connections better in a world where we've lost the physicality or the ease of the physicality that we traditionally had. And now what we're seeing within that is what I always call this lumpy recovery. So some people are like, oh, you know, I, I was in Florida. I was in New York last week and there are no masks and everybody's hustling and bustling. But the city still feels like it's running at about a third. Right, and, and it was pretty work heavy where I was. Like I was in busy work areas of New York City, but it wasn't a hundred percent. And not everybody is back, and so that that becomes the where will we find these bridges? What will they look like? And I think everybody's going going to or will be or is fumbling through this in the dark, and it will be like that for the next little bit until we find that light that makes sense for us and our business. That's so well said. You know, I, I was in. Um... San Jose and Oakland last week. And I thought the same thing. The lumpy recovery is a great way to visualize that in my head because you have pockets of normalcy and then a pocket of absolute ghost town. So what's that going to look like, you know, locally in Oakland versus nationally? And what will, you know, people say the new norm? I don't, I don't necessarily use that wording, but What will we wind up with, I think, is how I look at it, because there's going to be a hybrid model of what we had on on both extremes, with one extreme being pre-pandemic, everybody everywhere, and then the other extreme being nobody anywhere. Somewhere in there is where we wind up, maybe 85% of where we were. I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows. No, I, I don't think we know. And I also don't think that I'm even comfortable using the words, like you're very bold to use those words because people are saying those things. And I don't necessarily believe I have proof of any way, shape or form other than thoughts that we won't go exactly back to the way things were. Yeah. Only because the tools existed. The ability to work remotely always existed. Now you've been exposed to them. 
So maybe you'll have an instance of that. But I'd also argue that work has been around for a long time. and We've been optimizing it, driven by technology and innovation for an even longer time. And because of that, I don't know, are people suddenly not going to commute? Are people not going to, are we going to erode every single major metropolitan center that we have created over decades, if not century? Are we going to do that? Because I'd rather be at home in my socks and not have to do, like, I, I think a lot of times the sentiments are driven by some form of projection and the projections are, are, are very much aligned with, you know, the, the amazing work of my friend, Susan Kane and her book, Quiet, about the power of introverts. For a lot of people, it's like, this is the greatest. I never have to leave my home again. And for many people, it's like, get me out of here. For many people, it's not even choice-driven. We have tremendous privilege and we keep forgetting it. There are many people who live in five, six, 700 square foot apartments with a partner and a dog and maybe a kid and their Wi-Fi isn't that great. And going to work is part of experiencing life and not feeling like I am trapped with crappy Wi-Fi with somebody who I love, but can't always get along with. So- There's so many factors that have to fundamentally change who we are. And now look, you know, look at the the narrative now when we're recording this show. There's a lot of people saying back to work. And you're seeing instances where 50% of the people show up when they say that. But you're also seeing instances where many people are saying, I'm ready to go back. Yeah. And the mental health on top of that. I don't even know how we're going to deal with that. I mean, I, I just don't know because I've, I know people who are introverts and very much like working by themselves and are experiencing a tremendous sense of anxiety and panic right now, not because they have to go back or not, but just because they're starting to realize that as much as I love to be alone, I don't know how healthy it was for me to be alone. Yeah, for that long. I mean, it, it's just like an experiment with 40 gabillion hypotheses right. that we don't know which one to choose. And to your point, we don't really have to choose because it's going to play out one way or the other. You you mentioned something that I think about a lot and look at, which is commercial real estate occupancy. Yeah. Because, you know, my business, a lot of my business is driven around big office buildings and municipalities. And if the rent roll isn't rolling in to the landlord, there's certain things they don't spend money on and upgrading the equipment is one of them. So how does that impact me as a person? How does that impact me as my company that I work for? The people that I you know, coach and mentor through life that are going through that uh, mechanical world. What did they think about? You know, it, I don't know. It's just so darn interesting. And yeah, and we can look at some of the data. So I'm happen to be an investor in commercial real estate and spend some of my attention on that. And news was out last week: thirty percent increase in commercial real estate in the U.S. driven primarily by the big tech people. Yeah, one of the biggest, some of the biggest real estate deals ever in the history of commercial real estate were done last year. Now. Okay, these are the tech people that are the ones who are leaders in remote work. And again, freeze the pandemic, not easy to do, but let's freeze it. What were they doing before? They were building campuses. They were trying to get their people to live basically where they work and creating, whether it's entertainment, food or otherwise, ways to keep them very connected to that place of work. Now we can debate whether or not that's healthy, wise, smart or not, but they have come out of the gates in a lockdown world where everybody thinks we're going to be 50% remote and have been actively buying up physical space for offices. 
Now, as an investor, I can tell you, I've seen some instances where some of the major businesses are doing this because they want to have more space so they can spread people out and maybe move away from open planning to more closed offices or more cooperation-based buildings and infrastructures. Lovely. But there is no indication on the financial side that we are shifting the habit that everyone's like, oh, we're going to be, we're going to work three days a week. Oh, it's going to be 50%. And by the way, even if we go down that road, I don't know that that can be dictated by anybody but the person who's leading the team that you work on. Yeah. Because if suddenly we're all like, oh, yeah, no, we're doing 50% or three days at home or whatever, unless it's being managed well, this is going to be an unmitigated disaster. Nothing's going to get done because two out of the five are in this day. They're not that. It's going to have to be a concerted effort by a multiple group, which means multiple families and dynamics to make this really work. So what I've been learning one in particular tech company. So they're planning on this, you know, 75% occupancy rate while they're doing this hybrid role and they're hoteling their employees when they come in, but they're not scheduling that. So Mm -hmm. my worry would be, okay, we're planning for three and we have four today show up and we have three desks available. Where does that other person go? Now they burned a commute they're on their tick because they can't get their work done. So we pretty well blew a day trying to. Yeah, but even, even hot desking or models like that, which are interesting. The challenge with it from my perspective is more like, do you feel like you're truly at your place? Right? Like, and I'm, I'm not talking about the fact that you know, I have a picture of my spouse on my desk or, or something. With, you know, I, I don't know. But I do know that if I was constantly going to an office and I didn't have my place, a place where I know it's my bag is there and no one's going to rip it off or move it or take it somewhere else because they need... I mean, you remember boardrooms, don't you? (laughs) You you remember when someone is over their time or someone's in there and you have a meeting, the general frustration and how displaced you feel when when, when you need those spaces. Now you're going to take away wherever they sit, whether it's a cubicle, whether it's open, whether it's a closed office. Again, you can take it away when there's a proper format and formula in place, but Making people feel like when it, when you come to the quote unquote office, there's just these random spaces. I don't know how at home or culturally connected people are really. I think it, some will, but but many won't. Well, it's going to be really problematic. Totally agree with you. It's going to be interesting to watch that play out, and it'll play out good, bad, and in different in different scenarios. You mentioned being in your spot, and uh, that just triggered a thought for me. You were recently last year named on the radar for the 50 top thinkers. Yeah, thinkers 50. Uh, yeah. yeah, thinkers 50. One of your cohorts on there is uh, Ruth Gaudian. Awesome. I was reading her book this weekend. I'm almost through with it. One thing that when you said that, Mitch, about being in your spot, about three quarters of the way through her book, she talks about getting in that zone. And for me, when I get in the zone, I'm in a comfort zone mentally and physically. Yeah. And to your point, I don't have this. It's not the the picture of my dog or my wife or whatever on the desk. But I mean, like I can work in here. I'm in I'm in a in a temporary office right now because I'm moving. But it's set up just like my normal office yeah, is, yeah. and I can almost work in here in the dark. But the thing is, Greg, if if you walked into that building. And there was somebody there, whether it's computer-based or person that said, oh, today you're not in that space, you're over there. And it's got like a circular desk and not a great chair. 
Or now because you're doing this project, Greg, you're up there. Now, some people are like, well, that's cool. Like, you know, you kind of, but I think some people need to feel place. Like I'm, I put, I'm that, I'm that person. Yeah. And again, maybe, you know, we're all white guys. Could be that. <laughs> it just could be like, this is how I am, but I'm the same way. Like when I, when, I, when, when we left Twist Image, which became Miram and I was, you know, one of my business partners and I decided we're going to share office space and work together and we're still partners. We looked at the WeWork model and all this and we looked at these hot desks so you could rent. Yeah, everything came back to like, well, where do I put my bag? Oh, when, when, you know, when you go to the bathroom, you take your bag and you lock it in this locker and you put it over here. And I was just like, you know what? Like, <laughs> I, this is like a lot of work to have to go pee. And right. that, you know, again, I don't know if it was old dog, new tricks where I was just like, it didn't feel like it was my place. And even the spaces they were showing me it didn't feel like space. And fortunately, we found great commercial space very close to where we are. Unfortunately, we signed the five-year lease a month and a half before the pandemic hit. <laughs> but we, we kept the space and we have the space and we love the space. And, and, and I do think that, that, again, it's not the physicalness. It's not the separation of work and home. It's the sense of belonging when I get there. And no, so I, if you're going to move that. to hot desks and models that we're talking about, what needs to happen with that is a cultural shift that makes people feel more connected because we are subconsciously removing an important aspect, which is this is my space. And I feel like I'm a part of it because of it, a little bit because of it. Now, people might be listening to this and thinking that's absurd, but I think there's a lot of subconscious cues that we have and use that people don't realize impact the work they do every day. Yeah, I would be really curious to talk to people that have done the hot desk hoteling model to see how they felt about it. And maybe they love it. It's, it's a personality they, type They too. may, yeah. 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 And, and is that a generational thing? And I don't know. I mean, when I go into our offices that are scattered all over the country and I go up and, and I talk to somebody at their work area, it's theirs. You know, I see the Girl Scout, whatever, the prom. I see all that stuff. That's their environment. And, you know, you don't want to have to pack all that up and carry it with you every day. You have a, a damn suitcase, you know, instead of a, a book bag. And I, and I do like the concept, right? Like, I don't want to oversell me being a traditionalist and needing an office with a closed door. It's, I, I do like this concept of, like, you don't need to be fixed in one place. You should be where the team is. You can work, collaborate. I, I do believe that. But... I've traveled enough and been in enough offices that have been either clients of mine and or other offices of the agency. And that includes a Toronto office, which was mine. Literally, I had my own office there as well. And it still, it took a long time for me to feel a place there. And I don't think I ever really had one because I would just grab whatever desk was available. Yeah. I could have had my own office there. I probably should have. But I just feel like we've done a lot of optimization of work over the years and we're making a lot of assumptions based off of not really practicing and seeing what it's like just because we're not there yet. Yeah, good point. I'm curious from a company culture perspective of what these last two years and what you know remote work moving forward does to long-term goals of creating a culture within a company and what that does to retention and things like that. And I'm curious about you know how, how companies handle that sort of thing. Because if if they follow what many of their uh, stories would suggest that lots of employees want to continue a hybrid work environment or a remote work environment, well, eventually that, that has to deteriorate to some extent the kind of culture that you can build as a company. There are many companies that are, are remote only and do a lot of things to engage and make people feel connected, whether it's digitally or just regular meetups and things like that. 
So it's worked. You know, has it really worked at scale is the question. And I don't, you know, I'm not sure. I think there are a couple of examples, but not enough where you feel like there's a real path here. And this speaks to my general optimization of, of, of what work looks like. And I do think that we used to say, we, we used to say, we still say in marketing that we need to surprise and delight your customers. So it's a standard pattern. I really do think August, September, back to school of last year, companies really started thinking, how do we surprise and delight our team members and our employees? And I mean more than foosball tables and free lunch at Google. Like really, what are you doing to help them feel connected to the business, to the team, to themselves, to feel like they're growing? And safe. Yeah, if, all of that, for sure. And yeah. I don't know if you remember, in the early days of the pandemic, it's hard to remember these times, people said, you're not working at home, you're at home working. Bit of this empathy thing. Do you guys remember that? That was like a big mm-hmm. saying. Yeah. And I think it was true, but I think underneath it was this whole world could head into the next Great Depression and I better work my tail off from home to provide value. So productivity did really, really well for a long time. A long time, over a year and a bit. But then productivity took this tailspin from what I've seen. I mean, I'm not the, the researcher here, but I'm just reading articles and seeing. And, you know, what is, I mean, look, that's a you know, myriad of reasons from, from just general fatigue to how much longer can I maintain this, the realities of, of what this might be, that we're no longer just trying to survive, but we're trying to sustain this model. Now, there could have been a lot of pressure there. And I don't know how well companies have done. And I say this only because the conversations that I've been having on my podcast have been with people like Jennifer Moss, who just published a great book on burnout the burnout effect. And her general sentiment is we failed miserably, which is really fascinating. So let me get this right. There's a global pandemic. Okay, cool. You're now working from home. You can essentially now create your own schedule and nobody will know. I mean, there's some check-ins and stuff, but let's be honest. And yet we've never had more burnout or worse mental health issues. Yeah. Now, now, who's talking about that? And who's talking about that in terms of really reconciling it against the corporate culture? Because that's the big question. If given the choice or, or not choice, if, if forced <laughs> to work from home and be remote and we're giving you the tools and everything you need to do that, and you're still experiencing more burnout than you did before, how is this better? Can somebody walk me through this? Now, if you say, well, Mitch, all we have to do to solve this is to take away the pandemic component. It's the pandemic component that was creating the psychological stress that creates the better, blah, blah, blah. And I'd still say, I don't know. I think that's a grand statement that we'd have to dig into and really look at. But we are facing a mental health crisis if we're not already in one. We're seeing more burnout than ever. We're seeing people resign more than ever. Here's the other interesting factor. Why do people stay with a job? Now, this has been really interesting fodder for business work for the past few years. People stay with their job, Greg and Tyler, because they feel valued and it's meaningful, correct? Not because of how much they're being paid. You don't have to pay everybody. As long as they're feeling valued and meaningful, the pay is really... Well, it turns out that in a couple of surveys that came out last, literally last week, the number one reason people left was because they wouldn't feel like they were being paid enough. So now you've got other research, and again, pandemic-related or not, that's just speaking to a different story. So, okay, we worked remote. People are quitting on masks because they're not being paid enough or they're not feeling, feeling valued. Let's call it you know, four quarters for a dollar. But they're also experiencing this tremendous amount of burnout and anxiety and mental health. And what a position. It, I mean, how, how much harder, put aside a war and supply chain issues, which you can't put aside, but put it aside. 
How much harder is it to be a leader these days? Yeah, or and a recruiter trying to fill the void. Well, I think they're busy. I think they're doing great because these people aren't not employed. They're finding work. And, and people are, yeah. Now, I'm with you on that front. The challenge that, from what I read, and I'm not a recruiter, but I do talk to them periodically, is, I mean, and it's such a deep topic. I mean, we could go on for hours about this, but the people who choose not to work right now, the people who want to work and find the right spot for themselves to work versus this corporate thing. They're not sure how it's going to work out. Am I going to, if I take this remote job, is that long-term? Am I got, do I have to think about my commute, you know, in a year from now? I don't, there's so many factors. And to your point about the, the mental health state of many the pandemic's like the tipping point for that, I think, in my opinion. It wasn't the catalyst. It was just like, Jesus, I've had enough. I can't do it anymore. And the longer we get it, went into it, the further people were started, you know, basically saying, I'm done. That's mental fatigue, like they were maintaining and maybe the commute was helping them because they were able to download on the way to work and on the way home mentally get their get their head right, you know, maybe the commute helped. Then to your point, you got two people living in 800 square feet, 24 hours a day with each other. That's a lot of pressure, even if you love your partner. With or crappy your Wi-Fi. <laughs> with crappy Wi-Fi, which is enough to send me over the edge some days anyway, and everything else is good. But man, it, it's such a... Let me add another component to it, which is like yeah, a heavier please. weight. And this is a world that I think, you know, I know you, Greg, really will get on this entirely. We just don't know each other long enough, but I think you will too. What about the customer? Now imagine you're a customer and 20, 30, 40, 50% of your client's team is new. Have you been a customer? I've been a customer lately. It's Aziz Ansari has a great little 30 minutes running on Netflix now. I don't know if you've seen it. And he talks about, you know, what's happened in the world since, you know, Trump is out and, and the pandemic. And he's like, essentially, everything's the same, only just a little bit crappier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, even here at the club, he's like, oh, you know, I'll be with you in a minute. It's my first week here. <laughs> I'll get your drink in a minute. Like, I've been to hotels. I've been uh, with planes. I've been at retail. I've been in organizations. I've dealt with, you know, suppliers that we're dealing with for our new startup. And People are really trying, but I got to tell you, the customer experience is really, really scary. Absolutely. And again, you know, we love to blame things like the great resignation and supply chains and a global pandemic. But, but again, going back to leadership, leaders are also not just dealing with teams. They're dealing with customers. Right. And customers are not stupid. Customers know right away that this is not what I got two and a half years ago, and it's, whether it was with you or your competitor. And what a challenging place to be in. I mean, again, I switched dentists and I'm, I'm waiting like, well over my six months for my, my cleaning. And that frustrates me. I, I actually like to go three times. I, I can't, you know, they don't have enough dental hygienists. Right. They, they got, you know, every, you know, this, the, the way COVID and cleaning it slows down how many people they can see. To, I mean, I can't not look at this and go, wow, I'm paying more for less. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's- That's a brutal side of this. You know, we're, we're so focused on, on what's happening in my, your business doesn't exist without your customers and great customer service. Yeah. And now this is falling out of our control. See, normally you can control that or your competitor, you know, either you control it or your competition does, right? That's right. <laughs> they provide it when you don't, but now nobody can control it. It's really bad. Well, I think 
what what comes to mind, I had an experience yesterday. My wife and I were out looking for houses and I said, I'm, I'm going to swing through and get this on the way home because I'm going to put it on top of the salad I'm going to make. I had a great idea. Well, I go to the door of the restaurant to get in. I can't even get in. Drive through only. And there's 48 cars in the drive through, oh. none of which had moved since I went. So I'm just like, OK, I'll just open a can of beans when I get home. But that is customer experience trying to buy a house and I'm using all this stuff in real time because I'm going through it, trying to get a call back. Like I'm about to spend a fair amount of money on a place to live. I'd like to feel good about that. I'm I'm about to give you a big chunk of money in commission. Could you just call me back? That would be really good. I don't know, Mitch. It's uh, does it go back to culture though? Well, no, no, because this is what we were talking about earlier. That's what makes this such a dynamic and crazy time. If it was about culture, you would have the place where if you don't take care of your customers, your competition will. What's happening now is, is this global anxiety because it's driven by the fact that it's, a lot of this is now out of the business's control. Too many new people, not enough access to services, too many people shifting in general, people's actual schedule changing. These, the, the good thing about all of this is that we're all dealing with it together. You know, the bad thing about this is we're seeing it unfold in real time. And by the way, you know, when, you, when you talk about, you know, or when I think about my work, I actually think my work is very much embedded in this, I don't want to call it customer experience, it's, but, but consumer behavior. That's really what I, you know, people are like, oh, you know, you're a futurist, you're a tech guy, you're a social guy, you're a digital guy. It's not really that. It's, it's more of if Netflix habituated all of us to pay a small monthly fee for access to an entire library versus paying to buy one thing, how is that consumer behavior potentially an opportunity for my business? What can I, how do I, I don't want to say how do I Netflix my business, but how do I potentially look at databases and things in which we operate that I could open up to my customers and enable them access to these libraries, either for free or on a small monthly fee that might create this new business opportunity for me? That's like the core of, of the work that I do. And I'm really fascinated by that. And I think we have had significant changes in our consumer behavior that opens tremendous opportunities for B2B, B2C, small, medium, large businesses. I think, I think a complex, highly regulated B2B business could look at Netflix and find five or six things in which they could do to change their business and make them truly unique in the industry that they serve. Star asterisk to that is now you're dealing with it in this global lumpy recovery that has all of these added on byproducts that you don't that you can't necessarily control. And so when we see the real champions in business today, a lot of it is going to be those who were able to manage through that lumpiness and that reality. But let's face it, it's very rare to come into a business now that they've gotten buttoned down and they they know it. I mean just think about Amazon. Do you remember when the pandemic happened and you'd order something on Amazon as a Prime member where it's usually showing up in a couple of hours or tomorrow and suddenly it's saying two weeks? Right. And now you're shopping the brand. Like you're trying out other retailers that might have curbside pickup locally because it's shut down and everyone's wearing masks and gloves. But that was like a, a, a real massive eye-opening moment for me in thinking about if all we're thinking about is our team and our people and our supply chain and not what the clients are actually seeing, that's going to be the bigger problem. That's what's really biting right now. I think those are the big stories of the day. I mean, we're all consumers, you know, for whether it be 
picking up chicken tenders to go on my salad or buying a home. It's in your face and you're like, I wish that I had what I had two years ago. It's a pressure cooker. Yeah. It's a pressure cooker too. And that's the other thing. Because if the spectrum of it is your, your chicken tenders all the way up to a house, that's a pressure cooker. Like we get, we look at even, even, you know, talk about cars. You want to get a car, good luck, right? There's micro trips, supply chain, all these issues going on here. There's a boats with, with what Bugatti's on fire and Porsches that are at the bottom of the sea now. If you saw that story about that ocean liner that was carrying all these luxury cars. I saw it. You know, you think about that and you go, well, you know, okay, well, I'll just put off buying. That's a pressure. Again, it's a privilege. It's a, it's, you know, not everybody can afford a car, but that is when you're making that list and realizing like, oh, I got to sign my family up for global entry. I haven't done that. Oh, I need to, you know, my lease is coming up in August. Oh, I got, and suddenly you're realizing that, wow, my runway needed to be a lot longer. I need to be more flexible. I need, all of that is, is a pressure cooker. And we bring that as, as our whole selves into work. We see that in our own business. This is, I believe this, this is one of the reasons why people are also burnt out and quitting. It's because, well, a lot of people on my team are already gone. They took mental health leaves, they're checked out, they're working from home, and or they're just new. Yeah. We are not looking at all of the small things to realize the thousand paper cuts, right? We're not seeing the paper cuts. And there's a lot of them for everybody. And I'm not being finger pointing or, or, or non-optimistic. I'm, I'm not. I'm just trying to illuminate that a lot of the things we see come from a lot of the smaller things. It's not the big thing, like what's our work culture or ethics here. It's the fact that, well, regardless of whether we have it or not, we can't get access to right service. We can't service our customers well. And 20% of our staff is brand new. So, you know, GFL, as they say in the business. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I love that. I, I love the way that you are able to dissect that because I think you just said, what a lot of people are thinking and maybe just could not articulate it uh, like you just did. So I really do appreciate that. And so we're, we're coming up on our hour because this is where I would try to put more uh, me- uh, coins in the meter, but Tyler doesn't take them. Uh, so I get him, <laughs> only get a few minutes. So that's good. I, I think an hour is a good tight, tight time to spend with people. So parting thoughts, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. God knows we covered like one bullet point off my page that I had written down. So uh, uh, 2.0 later, but give, give us a, a little glimpse of, of the future in your opinion only. Where are we headed short term, long term? Do, do you feel like we're on the and, and you said it while ago pretty well, though. You think we are on the right side of the thing. And what we're going to look like in a little while, still, still up in the air. But uh, how do you, how do you feel, and, and where are you heading with your business? Just you, you know, where are you going? Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to ignore the three W's. I, mean, I think that's World War Three. I, I see it as uh, it's hard to avoid the war, waves, and weather. <laughs> it's hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, we got this this war coming that. You know, we can say it's not a world war, but it's feeling like one, whether it be a boots on the ground or, or economic sanctions being put in place. It feels very threatening. You have waves. We don't really know what new waves are coming our way with the pandemic and how we're going to deal with it you know, in this lumpy way, geographically, et cetera, politically, whatever it might be. And then we have weather, which was supposed to be the big thing after, after COVID, which is climate. And then oh, just oh, throwing a little war there for you. So let's not be negative and focus on the three W's. One, I'm always optimistic because if I've learned anything during the pandemic, it was that the economy did, for all of its craziness, and even though we were printing money, 
was able to withstand. And we did see a level of consumers and we didn't see people panicking and not buying anything and not being engaged and not doing well. And so that was very optimistic for me. And I believe that that will healthily continue, I hope. I believe that when we talk about virtual work, going back to work, customer behavior, I I don't like the word hybrid. I, I like the word blended. And I'm very positive and bullish on on blended, that we will better understand that maybe it doesn't have to be a text, but it can be a Zoom. That maybe the podcast doesn't have to be audio only, but it could be video like this and we can see each other. Um, and then the other the other lesson I'll steal from someone else, James Tuzi, who's a very well-known economist, historian, professor, and he wrote an excellent book on the pandemic called Shutdown. And I I interviewed him on my podcast and we talked a little bit about supply chains and my worries. I was maybe focused on the war waves and weather a little too much in that conversation. And he gave me pause by saying, this is a blip in time. Supply chains will work itself out. Even inflation, you know, the argument that inflation is imaginary. If we all panic and decide we need a car, then inflation happens. If we all just chill, (laughs) inflation doesn't happen. And we're seeing it happen at scale here. And so we can maybe have a debate about that or bring on a person smarter than me to talk about it. But that idea that maybe this is a blip and that it's a cycle and that we will make it. So those three things keep me optimistic about it. And I I believe that to be true. Well, you're writing and you're speaking. You always deliver optimism. That's how I enjoy you. You know, I I take that away. I really do. You you have a, a, a good vibe that to me says, here's some real things that are happening, but in the big scheme of things, we're going to be fine. It's a snapshot to your point. It's a date and time stamp. It's not forever one way or the other. So I, I think that is a really good way to, to leave this before I get on the three W's and I'm not going there. But <laughs> Mitch, really do appreciate your insight, your time you, you've taken to spend with us and drop some knowledge on us. And uh, really been a blast. Really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate spending time with, with you, Greg, and Tyler as well. And anytime you want to have a conversation, I'd be game for it for sure. Well, I appreciate that. Tyler, it's that time, my man. It is that time. Time to uh, to put another episode in the books. But uh, but again, Mitch, we, we appreciate your time and I appreciate you joining us here on the show today. And, uh, and Greg, plenty of great stuff to look forward to on the podcast as we have a lot of episodes on the books uh, into the future. I mean, man, I think we're booked out through like May now. I know, it's crazy. Well, see us at 2.6 million listeners. It's dragging us up there. But. The, the, num- the number always changes. But, well, uh, but when you have quality people joining the podcast, Mitch, you know, he mentioned Gittimer. I mean, we've had people that I went to high school with, and we've had worldwide famous people. It's just a, a great blend, but this kind of stuff, man, is just strong. I love it, and I appreciate it so much. I love it as well. So stay tuned for those upcoming episodes. If you are uh, listening along with us, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, anywhere where you get podcasts, you can find the show. So make sure to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest or hit thegregcrumpton.com for more. But until next time, for our guests today, um, Mitch Joel and Greg Crumpton, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mitch. Hey, a pleasure. 